whether in the media, our government, or our schools, Christianity faces tremendous intellectual persecution. This program stands on the intellectual front lines. With disarming honesty, we engage the most difficult issues facing Christians today. I want to welcome you to Theology Unplugged, the radio outreach of Credo House Ministries in Edmond, Oklahoma. We sit down over lattes at the Credo House coffee shop and just talk theology. I'm Michael Patton, president of Credo House Ministries. I'll be leading the discussion along with Tim Kimberly, director of ministries for Frontline Church Edmond, Sam Storms, lead pastor of Bridgeway Church, and finally J.J. Side, pastor of community and discipleship at Bridgeway Church. Welcome to Theology Unplugged. It's exciting to come together again. I've got JJ here at the table. I've got Sam Storms. I'm Tim. And we are talking about problem passages of the Bible. And we are talking about a subject today. And does this subject mean that God is acting in a way that is a mean parent? And the subject being the penal substitutionary atonement of humanity. Okay. And so did Jesus substitute himself for humanity, substitution, atonement, uh, because it was a penalty from the Father on him. And I'm just thinking real quick, Isaiah 53, verse 6, uh, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So here that we have the Father laying on the Son uh, what could be amount to child abuse. And is that what we hold dear when we think of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus? Yeah, that language really kind of gets my back up because yeah. <coughs> we hear that a lot. Are you feeling a little uh, riled up? I'm feeling a little riled up. <laughs> here's, um, a, here's a good quote. But, uh, uh, here's a good quote. A guy at a Protestant conference in the mid-'90s stood up and said, I don't think we need a theory of atonement at all. I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses and blood dripping and weird stuff. Yeah, uh, there's, there are quite a few who have actually referred to what I consider the most precious truth in the Word of God mm-hmm. at the very heart of the gospel and they describe it as cosmic child abuse, this idea that the father has um, inflicted on a helpless and unwilling victim, his own precious son, this horrific experience of uh, dying on a cross, being humiliated, being scourged, and and, and enduring his, uh, the violence of his wrath. And so it's portrayed in the worst imaginable language. Now, Let's be honest with our people who are presenting this objection. There have been Christians down through history, and even some in our own day, who have taken the notion of penal substitutionary atonement and pushed it in such a a, a direction that it does sound abusive. Mm -hmm. They haven't been careful with their language. They've used inflammatory and uh, very heightened and intense terminology and imagery that makes all of us kind of back up, say, no, wait, wait just a minute. Let, you're, you're giving, uh, this is grist for their mill. You're just giving them grounds to, to make this accusation stick. So we do need to be careful in our language, we need to define our terms very, very closely. Okay, well, you're feeling a little passionate, so let's go ahead and just uh, name some names. Who would be some people that, that are very much against penal substitutionary atonement or are saying that this is very clearly child abuse? I mean, yeah. I think of the atheists, like we have we have Richard Dawkins that is leaning this way. Uh, we've got oh. uh, Bart Ehrman uh, leans this way. But Yeah, do, we're talking about professing Christians, but those who yes. would even call themselves evangelicals. Yeah, yeah. So, so we're going to name names now. Yeah, right? let's, All let's, right. let's get it on. Uh, yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll only name the names of those who've actually published. And so we're, yeah, I mean, good. you can go read their books. The first one that I read that really stirred me was Joel Green, 
who now teaches at Fuller Theological Seminary. And it was a book called Recovering the Scandal of the Cross. Uh, another very popular name is uh, Brian McLaren, who has spoken uh, in similar terms about penal substitution. Um, we and have, like Rob Bell. Rob like, Bell is, is another this. example. Yeah. Uh, in England, a very prominent evangelical named Steve Chalk. Um, it's, it's Chalk with an E on the end, who's a very, uh, very well-known mm-hmm. in evangelical circles, has mm-hmm. also spoken against it in this way. And the, and the amazing thing is, um, uh, I, I don't know all of these individuals, but yeah. uh, I don't know their status before the Lord. I hope and pray they are all born again. But there are a number of others whose names I won't mention that I am convinced know Christ in a saving way, and they're speaking out very loudly and passionately against the notion of penal substitutionary atonement. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's define it. You said we need to define some terms. Uh, are there more than the three terms, penal, substitutionary atonement? Yeah, we, would, we should probably talk about the word propitiation, which okay. is used in the New Testament several times, which has the notion, and again, this is a disputed term, but I think it has been clearly demonstrated years ago by Leon Morris, an Australian New Testament scholar who's now with the Lord, and others, that propitiation means to satisfy or to appease. Uh, the notion, we talk about the satisfaction theory of the atonement, and what mm-hmm. we mean is that Jesus in his sufferings satisfied the wrath of God against those for whom he was dying. Uh, He propitiated or appeased the wrath of God. In other words, he absorbed in himself the judgment and the righteous uh, anger of God against sin for those on whose account he was dying and whose place he was suffering so that that wrath is no longer uh, a relevant point in the relationship between God and humanity. Uh, So it's the idea of substitution. He is he is hanging in our stead, in our place, vicariously where we should have hung, enduring the penalty against sin that we deserved. That's penal substitutionary atonement. Okay. And then there's, would you say that Jesus in the garden is where maybe a lot of this angst from even Christians is coming from, of in the garden, Jesus is pleading, it seems like, that let this cup pass from me. Lord, is there some other way that the sin of humanity can be can be atoned for? Uh, but, you know, not my will, but your will be done. Do you think that the garden is where a lot of people are getting a little bit of angst on this? Yeah, it could be, because let's be honest, Jesus knew what he was facing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the reason the yeah. reason why he balked is because he knew exactly uh, the wrath that uh, he would endure on behalf of hell-deserving people. Yeah. And um, but at the, in the final analysis, as as you quoted Tim, Jesus resigned himself to the will of the Father. He said, "Not my will, but thine be done." But let's add to this, and by the way, this is a very crucial point in responding to the uh, the opponents of penal substitution, is that. Jesus died voluntarily. Nobody forced his hand. Nobody held a gun to his head. No one coerced him against his will. Jesus said in John 10, I give my life willingly. Nobody takes it from me. I give it up. I yield it up on my own account. You know, I've been preaching through Hebrews now for several months and over and over and over again in Hebrews, it says Jesus offered himself. Jesus offered himself. So, uh, this idea that somehow he's he's knuckling under to a bully in heaven, his father, is a total distortion of the Word of God. So have these scholars not read the book of Hebrews? 
Well, I think they probably have. I, I think there are underlying reasons why they don't like this doctrine, which we'll come to in just a minute. Do you think it's a daddy wound? <laughs> I don't <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, and but, I, and I, I don't mean I, I joke, not meaning to not take this seriously in Scripture, but but in the sense of, you know, we do try and find like what are the motivations where something may be clear to me in Scripture. Sure. But why is it not clear to somebody else in Scripture? And this is a lot of times the road that we have to drive down is is how can these people who, who have brains, who love Jesus, who read the same Bible I read and read in, in Hebrews, the same book that I'm reading when I'm reading Hebrews, but say, no, you know, we think that the father is issuing a little bit of child abuse here. Well, and, and Tim Keller's done a great job in his book, The Reason for God, which is some people have called the, the mere Christianity of the 21st century. And have he, have and you he, called it that? I would call it that. Yeah. And, uh, and he echoes Bonhoeffer, who both, both of them agree and say, you already know this. This is a bit of an emotional argument, but it's a good one. Don't you already know intuitively that all forgiveness always is a form of costly suffering, mm-hmm. that if you choose not to exact revenge against somebody, that that's painful, right? You give up the right to feel that vindictive pleasure of punishing them for what they did, and you absorb that pain into yourself. Don't we already kind of know that's what it works like on even a small, finite, frail human scale when we mm-hmm. forgive? So, so the question becomes, you know, why did Jesus have to die? Couldn't God just forgive us? And it shows a fundamental misunderstanding about how forgiveness works. And so Keller says there was a debt to be paid. That's why he had to die. There was a debt to be paid, and God himself paid it. There was a penalty to be borne. God himself bore it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and maybe, you know, a couple of passages that immediately come to mind. Um, Certainly the one in 1 John um, where it talks about Jesus being the propitiation for our sins, the same words used in Romans 3. But then you think about Galatians chapter 3. This is verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Just Mm -hmm. as it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Or uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, Tim, you read earlier from Isaiah 53, where uh, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the very graphic portrayal of Christ's sufferings in that uh, prophecy from Isaiah. So we're not, we're not making up this doctrine mm-hmm. just because maybe we have a bloodthirsty bent to our souls. Um, we're embracing this because we think this is the clear and consistent teaching of the New Testament. Yes. Well, and how ironic that often the very same people that would be offended by what they see as uh, vindictive or graphic at the cross are the very same people demanding of God an answer for human suffering. Mm. And so it's a bit perverse that when God gives them the greatest answer by uh, suffering himself, yeah. that they fail to put the two together and reject them both. You know, as one person said, oh, I'm not letting... God off the hook for human suffering. And what they don't understand is that in the New Testament, God puts himself on the hook yeah, for the, human suffering. Yeah, the hook actually goes through his, his arms and That's his right. Feet. And John Stott said in his famous book, the, the Cross of Christ, I could never myself believe in a God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? So they're taking offense at the very thing that should be sweetest to them, that God is not immune to pain and suffering, and he is not callous towards it. In fact, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. Yeah, it, well, in Second Corinthians 5, I'm looking at right now, verse 21, I'm actually preaching from this passage. Uh, for, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And yeah, I mean, I, I think that what I've, what I've realized in these problem passages 
is I think these are areas where you think like, oh man, we need to stay away from these. Like these are the badlands. These are the you know these are the desert places of scripture. Like you need to go to places that are well watered, and you're going to languish in these desert places. But what I've realized is that in these problem passages, usually uh, God is magnified, and something that might have been on face value a challenge, the more you look into it, you realize, wow, this is actually the heart of my faith, and this is the depth of the beauty of my God that I've come to love. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, w- one thing we all should po- also should point out here, because one of the objections that the uh, uh, opponents of penal substitution bring to bear into this argument is, is that we are denying other features or facets yes. or purposes in the death of Christ. And I just want to go on record as saying, not me. Yeah. Um, this may sound strange, but I believe in every theory of the atonement. Yeah. I, I really do. I, for example, uh, Peter Abelard, medieval theologian, talked about the moral influence of the theory of the atonement. I believe in that. I believe that Christ's death and the way he endured suffering without reviling back, 1 Peter 2, influences me morally and, and should. It's a motivation to us all. 1 Peter yeah. 4, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Exactly. Yeah. Or um, the Christus Victor theory. That's the idea of Christ the victor, where he conquered Satan and uh, defeated the powers of darkness and liberated mankind from enslavement to uh, the dark forces of the demonic world. Absolutely. I mean, First yeah. John says, for this purpose, Christ has appeared that he might destroy the works of the devil. Colossians yeah. 2 says the same thing. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the theory that the purpose of Christ's death was to restore the image of God in mankind. Well, of course it did. Yeah. All of these theories are true. The governmental theory is true. Mm-hmm. This idea um, that Christ died to vindicate the justice of God, to show yeah. him uh, a good governor of his moral universe who will not allow sin mm-hmm. to go unrequited. The point, though, is all of these theories only work because of an underlying mm-hmm. foundational assumption, namely that in his death, Christ dealt with sin. Yeah. The only reason Satan holds anybody in, in any kind of bondage is because of their guilt. Um, the reason why we are enslaved um, uh, to our own sinful ways and we are not influenced toward goodness is because of the reality of our sin. So yeah. in dying as a substitutionary sacrifice, enduring the wrath of God on our behalf, makes possible all these other uh, facets of Christ's death to be true. Because, yeah, and the way I think of it is it's like God changes the kingdom. He changes the world. Uh, he changes the relationship to, to us. He changes the relationship uh, to Satan. He changes the relationship to, to government, to many things. But him changing the relationship of how the Father interacts with human beings, like like that's the penal substitutionary atonement part uh, where we actually can be adopted as children of the King of Kings because of what Jesus did. And so, yeah, I mean, I love, would you say that the penal substitutionary atonement then is perhaps the foundation of what of what Jesus is doing on the cross? And then many of these other things are built on top of that it, foundation. Absolutely. It's the core. It's the, it's the, the, the fundamental nature of what he was doing as a result of which all these other blessings like the the, the restoration of the damaged image yeah. uh, is possible um, that the that we are stirred to live lives of repentance and holiness and self-sacrifice that we now have an authority over the enemy because his grip has been broken mm-hmm. whatever other um, theory or facet or accomplishment uh, we read about in scripture that came about as a result of the death of Jesus is because he 
first and foremost suffered in our stead and exhausted in himself the wrath that we deserve. And I hope our listeners understood what, what you just did there, Sam. We're not saying here's all the theories and this is why ours is the best. Mm-hmm. That definitely offends people in their post-modernity. You know, oh, I'm smarter than you. No, what we're saying is just ask the simple question, how do you get the image of God restored in you? How do you become a new creation in Christ? If you know the story, then all of a sudden you realize that you get all those things only if this problem gets fixed. Mm -hmm. How's it going to get fixed? Well, it takes something this crucial and this bloody and this explicit. And I think one of the reasons why some of you listeners might feel whiplash when you see the son willingly taking the father's wrath for your jacked up choices on himself is that if you're really honest, you probably don't think you're that bad. You know, it's like the cross looks like God's going over the top only because you shrunk your evil and made it look small. You know, the cross is only shocking to people that have been reading Rousseau, you know? Yeah, which I think is because we have a a small God. You know, like I've had people that have said, you know, are you telling me that one sin will sentence me to hell forever? And first of all, I'm saying, well, can you show me that you've only sinned one time? But I think another way of looking at it, I think this is a brilliant illustration that's not original with me, but is the idea that if I sin against you, JJ, uh, probably the most that's going to happen is we're going to have a little rift in our relationship, but it's probably going to be okay. I'll buy you coffee. We'll make it right. Yeah, yeah we'll make yeah. it okay. But if, if I sin against the other elders of my church, I could potentially get fired for that exact same sin. So a sin that that I did against you, you know, we just have coffee and we get over it. A sin against my employer, well, then that could get me fired. Now, if I sin, one sin against my country, which could be treason, could get me executed. So even in our understandable American justice system, one sin could still lead to death. And that is only a sin against a country, not the eternal God of the universe. And so, so I think even in how we're wired, we are already wired to understand that, oh my gosh, there's a potential. If I, now, if my God is really small, like you, JJ? <laughs> no. Not a big deal. No, yeah, yeah you're, not you're, a big deal. JJ yeah. is a small God. Yeah. Is that what you're trying yeah. to tell us? If it's like a little peasant like JJ, it's no big deal. But if it's the God of the universe, now we're talking about different things. So I, I think, think you just uh, sinned you know, against your brother. Yeah. yeah, but you know, it's not that big of a deal. We'll have coffee after. Well, and I think what you're doing, Tim, is very important. You're engaging all of our senses because we can talk sort of propositionally about these things and we can make true statements, but they don't grab us viscerally like they should. You know, I think it's true to say uh, a sin against an infinitely good and holy God is is infinitely serious. That's true, but you can sort of swallow that uh, yeah. blithely and not be moved by it. But I like to think of it like this. If we were on the basketball court playing pickup, and it's similar to what you were saying, and, and for some weird reason you became unbelievably irrationally angry and you spit on me, you know, that would be kind of weird and gross and I might that be mad That actually happened to me in high school. Oh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> Sam's experienced it. But it's not really the end of the world. We're just two sweaty guys in a gym playing basketball. Yeah. But what if you got really angry during the game and my sweet, beautific, well, sometimes beautific, uh, she's a sinner too, you know, five-year-old daughter, Isley, sitting on the sideline and you run over and spit in her face. Mm-hmm. Just the visceral reaction that we all have to trying to picture that. Yeah. You know, God is in a sense like my daughter. He's, he's pure. He's good. He's someone who deserves only our worship. Yeah. And then and then we take that perfect being and we spit in his face. And so we need to get a visceral awareness sure. of the evil of sin. Yeah. Yeah, and just a little clarification. I was not the spitter. I was, <laughs> yeah. I was the spitty. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> that's what they all say. So, here's a question, guys, that, that that that's worthy of our taking up a couple of minutes here. Why what are some of the underlying influences or causes or assumptions 
that would lead somebody who says, I'm a born-again believer and my eternal life is uh, brought to me because of what Jesus did on the cross, why would they deny penal substitutionary atonement? And I've, I've thought a lot about this, and I think there's a couple of reasons, and I'd like to get your all's reaction. Number one, you've already mentioned it. I think there is a, a diminished view of sin in our society and a diminished view of sin in our churches. Mm. We don't really... Um, as St. Anselm once said, says, thou hast not considered what a heavy weight sin is. And I think people have lost sight of that. And then secondly, um, there is, and you can actually trace this in, in the writings of those who reject penal substitution, there is a loss of the sense of wrath as a personal attribute of God. Yeah. A lot of these yeah. people say, no, no, that's beneath God's dignity. God yes. doesn't get mad. That's just a metaphor. And so they want to say that wrath is maybe this impersonal force in a moral universe, but God himself doesn't experience wrath in the same way he experiences love or kindness or grace. And um, following quickly on the heels of that is they say, look, penal substitution is at its heart violent. Mm. And the notion of redemptive violence is a contradiction in terms. Mm. But I'm just, you know, interjecting my own answer. Um, Again, reading through Hebrews as I have been the Old Testament sacrificial system was incredibly violent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very bloody in its nature. And Jesus himself knew the kind of death toward which he was moving, even prophesied it. So uh, you, have to, you have to unpack the notion of violence. Was what Jesus endured mm. from the Father for us a, a form of violence? Well, yeah, probably was. But here's the point. Our sin deserved to be treated violently. Justice yeah. required that sin be addressed in this manner. Yeah. And then I think there's a, another thing that um, is at, is kind of beneath the surface here, and that is this growing distaste among some professing Christians for this emphasis that we see in fundamentalism over individual salvation. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about me getting my sins forgiven and uh, Jesus dying for me and it becomes a very individualistic kind of perspective. And they want to think more in terms of social or corporate categories. Mm-hmm. And I think these are some of the primary factors that are at work mm-hmm. in, in giving rise to this, uh, this resistance we're finding to penal substitution. Yeah, I, th- I think so, too. And I, th- I think that, that hell is not very popular. You know, it, it shouldn't be popular. No one should, should uh, you know, it's, that's a tough subject in itself. But I think also as people are giving, you know, we mentioned Rob Bell earlier and kind of ideas of either uh, there won't be a hell or if there is a hell, uh, it's not going to last very long and God's going to just annihilate all those people and his last uh, swooping work of his grace will be just to annihilate everybody. And so so if, I, I, I think that if you, if there is no penalty, then Jesus doesn't have to pay a penalty. And, and I, th- I think that that's part of it as well, is that if, if, if we all just kind of make it in the end and God just lovingly allows us all to make it, then uh, that didn't have to be a big deal. And I think it's trying, because people see what Jesus is doing on a cross as a big deal, I think they're trying to work back and reconstruct what Jesus is doing. And we just have to realize that that's not reality. Well, people don't realize that they're often sawing off the branch that they're sitting on. You know, they react. Yeah 
they react and, and feel a deep sense of injustice about mm-hmm. God's wrath poured out on his son at the cross. And they don't realize that if you don't have a God of wrath, you don't have a God of love. If you don't have a yeah. God who's bothered by moral evil, yeah. then you don't have a God anymore. You just have another devil. You yeah. know? Do you really want a God who, when, he, uh, when you tell him about how you're abused as a child, he says, ah, stuff happens. Yeah. Do you really want a God who says to the rapist, hey, everybody has a bad day? Yeah. You know, no, I want a God who's deeply bothered by moral evil. And that reminds me of Edmund Burke's famous comment that the only thing necessary for evil to flourish is for good men to do nothing. And what we would say is that is that we have now it's it's a little trite to say we have two good men involved here, being the Father and the Son. Uh, but in one sense, uh, in a in a very divine sense, that we have good things happening to end evil. And you see God being violent, and I would say, you know, you have to ask yourself what kind of violence. Uh, a surgeon is violent when they cut away cancer yeah. because they're trying to stop the violence that the cancer is doing to your body. Yeah. So the violence of the cross, was it a violence that will someday end all violence, or was it a violence that perpetuates violence like some backcountry mm-hmm. family feud? You know, and the Scripture tells us it was a violence to put an end to all violence. Yeah. That's good, brother. So let me, let me close with this comment. Um, I, I, I think I'm speaking for the rest of you. If I'm not, you just yell into the microphone, all right? <laughs> Personally, if I cannot proclaim um, to a lost and dying world that God has made provision through the voluntary sacrifice of his son to endure the penalty for sin that they deserve, I don't have good news. I have nothing to say to a lost and dying world that's any better than what they'll hear from Oprah or Dr. Phil or anybody else if I cannot hold forth to them a solution to their sin and an offer of forgiveness and eternal life through the penal substitutionary death of Jesus. We hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast. If it's blessed you, they'd love to hear from you. And don't forget to join the group again next week for another edition of Theology Unplugged. Theology Unplugged is a listener-supported ministry of the Credo House. They're a theological hub and coffee shop, and their address is 109 Northwest 142nd Street in Edmond, Oklahoma, 73013. They're open Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 9 p.m., and Saturdays, 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. Please consider this your official invitation. You're invited to come and visit the Credo House and discuss today's program or take a tour of the theologically rich surroundings. You might also enjoy one of their signature drinks like a Luther latte or a Nicene mocha. In fact, if it's your first time in the Credo House and you mention that you heard their program on Bot Radio Network, you can have the drink of your choice for free. For more information or to support this ministry, visit credohouse.org.